Colossians chapter 2. I want us to start reading in verse 8, and then we'll read down through the end of the chapter. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority, and in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven you, having forgiven us, pardon me, of all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Well, let's turn our hearts and seek the Lord. Let's pray. Our everlasting God, we come to you. We come in spite of the Feelings that we have at times where our conscience tells us that we're not the kind of people that would be welcome in your presence. We come in spite of the fear that we have that you wouldn't hear us or respond to us. We come even though it's uncomfortable for us to talk to a being that is so unlike every other person we've ever met. You are the timeless, eternal God. You are not just the ancient of days who is ever young. You have never aged. You 
never started. You never will end. You live in every place at once. Your center, your residence is everywhere. There is no boundary to any of your perfections. When we think of the majesty and the bigness of you, your incomprehensibility, the fact that you are infinite and you have no measure, no limit, that your knowledge and power, that your authority can never be limited or even described accurately, not even by the highest of archangels, God. When we think of that, who do we know that's like you? And then we think of your goodness. This unexpected, seeking, strong, sovereign love. This mercy that seems to be determined to outpace our sin. This burning love that is not dampened by our indifference. God, how is it that such perfection can be toward us in peace? That your justice your wrath, your rightness, as well as your patience, your grace, and your faithfulness, that in Christ every one of these attributes meets us every morning, new, befriends us again, walks with us through each day, regardless of all of our stumblings. We thank you, God, that you have sent your Son to reveal who you are, and so while we echo the words of the Bible of Moses when he said, who is like our God, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, or like the prophet Isaiah when he says, to whom will we compare you? You are the incomparable God and there is none other. But we have come to know you. Every believer here this morning, every believer throughout the ages, every believer down the street and across this world, you have brought us to yourself through Jesus of Nazareth, and you have let us know you. You have given us a taste of your kindness. You've embraced us and let us know what it is to be declared right with the God that sees everything, to be loved by the king that we once fought against. So having given us eyes to see and ears to hear, a heart to love you, will you give us this morning the help we need to gratefully sit at your feet, to listen to your word, to stir ourselves, to look to our left and our right and to help our brothers and sisters in Christ to help them to stir themselves so that we would get up and live Unto you, all week long, eager to do the good works that you've prepared for us, even before you made this world, that we would walk happily, wholeheartedly in your commands. God, for all of this, we look to you. It is only you that we need, but we do need you, and we need all that you say you are for your people. We can't afford to, to have the attitude of a, a cabin in the corner of glory land is all that we need. It's all our salvation that has been promised. None of it's extra. We are so needy and you are infinitely sufficient. So we come again and again and we ask 
Give what we need. We pray also for those in our little fellowship that are sick or away. We think of those who have chronic illness and it can be so um, isolating. It's easy for us to forget them. You don't forget. So will you speak to them? Will you meet them? Wherever they're at. And God, for those that we love who are running far from you, we pleaded for them this morning. We ask again now, would you find them wherever they are? Would you speak in a way that can never be unheard? Would you call their name in an unexpected mercy and conquer them? God, we pray that you would do this for your everlasting glory as well as for our souls. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are returning to the theme of following Jesus of Nazareth. And uh, we're looking at the map that he walked by, uh, the map of the moral law, particularly as it's summed up in the Ten Commandments. And it is good to remember that the Christian life is not something that our world, our, even our religious culture, can rightly measure. It, the world just doesn't really understand the Christian. The Christian life is not the life of a person who has decided that it's worth it, uh, whether to be a good person or to have eternity you know, in the right place. It's worth it to give up all the fun things in life and to do without them. But that is not the Christian life. The Christian life is a life of, of sometimes of, we feel that it's indescribably happy. There are, the Christian life is a life with a living God at the center of it, not a God that we invented. It's, it's a life where God has freed us from a dungeon of self-centeredness, from a dark kingdom of deceit where we thought we were okay and, you know, we were headed on the right path, but we weren't. The Christian life is a life in which God unites us to a son. He removes us from all that we once were and from the shame of what we once did, and he places us in Christ and in Christ. And AC refers to that back this morning when he talked about Christ uniting himself to his people. Being united to Christ by faith, being placed in Christ by the Holy Spirit, your life woven together with all that Christ is. All that he did as a mediator is being shared with the Christian. Or as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, every possible spiritual blessing is yours in Christ. Everything that is good for us is in the Son for us if we're his. If we believe and follow. And so as we believe and follow, we look to him. And the happiness that the Psalms describe in Psalm 119, how blessed, how enviably complete and satisfied and joyful are the people that walk in his commandments. Or the joy that Christ described on that final night before his crucifixion, his long farewell talks. John chapter 15, you remember we looked at it, verse 9 through 11, where Christ describes the happiness that he enjoyed as a human obeying the Father. And he says to the disciples that if they will walk in harmony with his authority, if they will obey him, 
as he obeyed his father, then they will enjoy or abide in the wonderful awareness of this undeserved love. That they would live in the warmth of that. That, that it would be the you know, it would be the distinguishing mark of your life, what, wherever you're at in, in the process of human life, whether you're young or old, whether you just got married or you're looking for, uh, you know, a, a child to be born, whether you're a grandparent or you're in third grade, it doesn't matter. The path is for every believer. I can live in the happiness of being loved and that can distinguish me more than anything else. I am a person who's loved by God. And all of that, as wonderful as it is, is enjoyed on the path of obedience or walking the map that Christ gives us. Now, we looked at the first two commands in the Ten Commandments, and I want us to just stop because they go together. And before we get to the third and the fourth commands and the rest, I want us to stop and ask, well, what are some practical ways we apply this personally? They are, you remember, singular verbs. You, singular, shall not do this. You shall not do this. You shall do this. So singular, start with yourself. Don't worry about who is not here this morning. Don't worry about who you wish would have been listening. Just start with you, personally. But we don't stop there, do we? If you stop there, then it's really not obedience. Love to God and love to people means that we think about our families. How do I apply this in my home? How do I apply this in a local church? How do I apply this in a world that doesn't understand why I want to apply this? How do we take the truths of God out of our own soul's experiences, out of the scripture, and take it to home, church, and world? So we'll look at some just some specific things that I hope will be helpful and maybe we can apply them as we go along in the other commands. So first, where do you start? Well, there's a, there's, let me give you a starting place for our brain and then the starting place for the, the soul, all right? So starting place for the brain. Let's be really clear. What do the first two commands involve? Well, we are not to have any God before him. That is, no God in front of his face. No God in my soul. No God in your soul, except the one true God. And we are not to make that one true God in the fashion of anything in creation. That is, we are not to try to refashion God, to say, well, I know what the Bible says about God, but I've always preferred a God that was a bit more like this. And, you know, we kind of bend him and twist him like clay and we remold him and say, there it is. That's the same God as the God of the Bible. He's just adjusted to, you know, to kind of fit what we want. So those are things that we're to avoid. And the, we remember that when we looked at the Ten Commandments, that each of the commands, uh, they are summaries. It's, it's not as if you did these Ten Commandments. That's all that there is to loving God to loving people around you, but these are summary statements. They are, it's like taking all these, these aspects of living for God. What does it look like to live for God? What does it look like to love people that I work with or go to school with? What does it look like to live, love people that I go to church with and I live next door to? 
And you take all those thousands of things and you make them portable in the Ten Commandments. So much more could be said, but this is a portable edition. Now, I have an illustration for you, and I'm thinking my illustration is not as good as I originally thought. Here's why. Have you ever gone to a proper big library and seen the Oxford English Dictionary? How many volumes? I don't remember how many. I just remember there was like 20 plus. I was in the library in Britain. It was in North Wales. And I, I walked in and I see this wall and it's just like all these giant fat volumes all down these, you know, the shelves. And I thought, wow, you know, what set is that? I probably need that set. And I looked at it and it's the Oxford English Dictionary. I, I was, I know this is nerding out, but I was fascinated like, wow. I mean, you know, J.R. Tolkien contributed to that. Linguists for the last hundred years have been working on that. I even have a biography of a man that was in charge of guiding the linguist to work on that. And he looks like a crazy man with crazy British, you know, he's an old man, his hair's just all scraggly, and he looks like he's lived in the library his entire life. The Oxford English Dictionary is massive. How could you take that with you? Well, I have a smaller version. Look at this. 30 years ago, I lived with a guy in seminary, and he had this. And I said, you using that? He said, well, not really. I said, you want to sell that? This is the entire 20-plus volumes in two, not abridged. No words left out. So how do you get 20 volumes into that? Now, here's where my illustration breaks down. It's not so portable, is it? It's not like the pocket edition. I don't know what pocket this would fit in. And I don't think I would want to carry this around, you know, because it won't fit in my briefcase and say, well, this is my portable dictionary. But it is a lot smaller than the 20 volumes. So just stick with me there. How do you read 20 volumes in two? Microscopic print. Here in the bottom, there's a little shelf that opens up. And it's always hard to get open, so I already opened it. And this is inside. This is not because I'm old. This, I, I used it when I was young. This is a magnifying lens to take print that is so small, you can't read it without, no matter how good your eyes are. And so you have to use the magnifying lens because every page of that has about 12 little tiny photocopies of the original pages of the dictionary. So when you read that, it is portable. You could carry it from place to place. You could throw it in your car and take it with you if you needed to. But if you're going to read it, you have to read it kind of in a weird way, don't you? You have to understand that you're not going to read quickly. You're going to use a magnifying lens, and you're going to have to go slow. And that is, in many ways, how the Ten Commandments works for us. All these things that are involved in a life that's lived unto God are all summed up in 10 commands, but you don't just breeze through them. I mean, you could. You can quote them quickly, but it's better if you take a spiritual magnifying lens to them and say, okay, so this is just kind of a summary statement. When I look at the rest of the Bible, what else would be included? And we take things from Genesis to Revelation and we pack them in. So, we are talking about not letting any idols have a place in our life, not adjusting God. What does that mean? 
What's an idol? An idol is anything that offers you what God only can give. It usually will offer you that at a cut rate, at half price, but it will never give it to you because only God gives it. So there are things like, you know, the big picture, happiness, meaning, identity. Who am I? Well, we say, if I get this great job, that will mean I'm that kind of person. If I buy this kind of house, I'm that kind of person. If I wear these kinds of clothes, if I own this kind of, you know, electronic gadget, I'm that kind of person. It's so easy to get our identity from what we do, from who, who is impressed with us, or you can get it from God. What gives me safety? As I get older, I think of the, you know, the needs that come as you get older and you think, well, how do I know I, I'll be secure? How do I know I'll have enough? How do I know that I, you know, I won't be in trouble? And then you can hope in so many things. What do you wake up for? What do you plan for? What do you feel like if I don't have this in life, I couldn't be happy? That's probably your God. It can be a relationship, a person that you think will complete you, uh, you know, a marriage, and you say, oh, if I just had this girl or that guy, my, my kind of fairy tale idea of what life is going to be like, it, they, they fit in like a piece in the puzzle, just perfect, and they will complete my happy life, and we make a God of them. It can be a child, a grandchild. It can be being part of a community of people, fitting in, being appreciated. It can be, as I mentioned, an occupation. It can be money and what money buys. So many different things. What is it that really captures your thought? What is it you love to talk about? What is it you devote your time to when you have free time to devote it to whatever you want? What is it that draws your heart like a magnet? What do you find so compelling. So God says we are not to have anything in the category of God in our soul except God. And the positive side of that is that we are to have God. It's not enough to have no God. We want to have God, the God, the real God, unadjusted, wholehearted in our love for him, undivided, single-minded in love for him. Simple. Well, how do we do that in practical ways? Well, the first is this. And here's the, here are the principles, perhaps more for the soul, for the whole of life. First, we have to start with Christ. Looking unto Jesus. You remember the author of Hebrews chapter 12? Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, he says, look back at the Old Testament. We could look at the New as well. We can look at the last 2,000 years. There are so many believers that have run the race before us. They're now with Christ. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance, things that tangle you up, and the sin which so easily entangles you, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What's the race? Well, all of us have different tasks in life, but the path is obedience. Run obediently the path that God has placed before you. How do we do it? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, 
the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he goes on to say, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So let's start right there. How do you obey the first and second commands? We come to them as people who, because of the work of salvation, we look to Christ. And looking to Christ, we run the path of obedience. How do you look to Christ? Well, we look to Christ as our example. You remember the things that Scripture tells us. It tells us that in in Psalm 40, prophesying about the Messiah, verse 7 and 8, he says that doing the will of the Father, obeying God's word was his delight. In John chapter 4, he says that doing the will of the Father was his food. In John chapter 6, verse 38, he says that He came to earth not to do the things that he might want to do. He came to do the will of his father. John chapter 8, he says that he enjoyed the uninterrupted nearness of God because he did what pleased the father. John chapter 15 that we've mentioned, he walked in love and happiness with the father by obeying the father. Psalm 45, if we jump back again, it says, That the Messiah would be one who was given joy unparalleled. Joy above the joy or the happiness of any of his friends. How? Because he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. If we look at Jesus of Nazareth, we see the perfect example of a life that was single-mindedly in love with God and gladly devoted all hours, all energy, all thoughts, all relationships, all events, all possessions to his father. So it was the life that was lived to God perfectly. And we see that, of course, when he was offered the compromise by the enemy right at the beginning of his ministry, Satan's compromise. The offer was that Satan would give to Christ all souls, so to speak. Just hand them over. You can rescue them all. You can have them all. And the cost, of course, was that he would just secretly, quietly bow down before Satan and worship him just once. That to us, of course, is quite a shocking passage. You know, even to say it out loud is shocking. How could the enemy think that the God-man would ever accept that false bargain? But he doesn't. He worships the Father only. It's tempting for us. It doesn't come in such bold words, but it's tempting for us, whether we're looking at our family or the church or the nation, to think, you know, I know that I'm supposed to love God with all my heart and soul and mind and strength, and I want to be undivided in my love for Him, and I don't want to adjust Him. I don't want to subtract from Him. I don't want to add to Him. I want to follow Christ in this, And then the little lie comes. Yes, but if you would make a few compromises, if you would just adjust God just a little, you could rescue your family. Your kids would be interested in Jesus if you just changed a little. You know, your workplace would be interested in Jesus. 
You could fix things if you made a small compromise, if you just decided to bow before a Jesus that was slightly adjusted. And it's a lie. We see Christ perfectly loving the Father. When we look at the life of Jesus Christ, you can view it from the aspect of all that he's doing to rescue us, and that certainly is not wrong, but the primary picture that we have in Christ is we have God being displayed in a real human life where the God-man is living in perfect harmony with the Father, walking, running the path of obedience. And if you want to know what keeping the first two commandments looks like, you just look at Christ. But it's not just looking unto him that we run. It is living in him, which is why I read from, from Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians 2, Paul comes at it from a number of angles, but basically he starts by saying this in verse 8, I don't want you to be taken captive by some philosophy. And we say, well, we're not philosophers, so no trouble there, Paul. But he's not talking about proper philosophy. You know, he's not saying, now I don't want you reading Aristotle and Socrates. You'll get off track. What he's saying is, I don't want to see people who have been rescued by Christ get drawn off the path of obedience thinking that they need some other clever approach to life, some other way of thinking, some other way of fixing themselves. Don't follow any other ideal, any other scheme. Stay with Christ. And then Paul explains why. In Christ. United to Christ, you are alive from the dead. United to Christ, your old heart has been circumcised. It's been made new. It's been freed. United to Christ, your sins are nailed above him on the cross. The decrees of the law, the angry law, which you broke... Well, why isn't it angry with the Christian now? Because all of its anger was placed upon Christ. And in Christ, every enemy of your soul has been publicly trampled. He has walked out of a grave and walked over the, the necks of every lie, every enemy of the Christian. Everything that would tempt us, everything that would frighten us has been placed under the feet of the victorious Christ, who now rules on high. In Christ, everything you need for forgiveness daily, everything you need for full supply, everything you need for guidance, everything you need for hope, everything you need to fuel your heart is in Him. Look at Him again in Scripture and think... Connected to this person, that's how I approach the law. That's how I keep the first and second commandments. I don't adjust God. I don't let any other gods in my heart. How? Because in Christ, I have everything that I need to obey. Charles Bridges, I was reading this week, I think it was Psalm 119, verse 154. And I always think that as I'm getting into these later verses of his commentary on Psalm 119, because there's a lot of repetition, I always think, well, he won't say anything new. He won't say anything very helpful. Uh, he'll just kind of repeat what he said before. And I got the verse 154 in my quiet time. And he was talking about Christ pleading our cause. 
And when you think of following God's law, how are you going to obey? Well, you're going to need someone to intercede for you, someone to plead your cause in the highest courts. And you have that in Christ. And he will plead your cause or intercede all the way to the end, guaranteeing the full salvation. Now, listen to what Bridges says to the sinner, to the believer who sins, or to the sinner who thinks, why would he receive me? So whether you're coming for the first time to the cross or the 10,000th time, and you're tempted to stop short and think, I don't think that he would really be willing to help me. Listen to what Bridges says. Poor, trembling sinner, take courage. Your Redeemer is strong and he will thoroughly plead your cause. He will leave no charge against you unanswered. But you say, how do I know that he would speak for me? If not for you, sinner, for whom would he speak? Who needs an advocate more than you? He pleads, indeed, nothing favorable from you. In other words, he doesn't say to the father, come on, Chuck's a great guy. You know, just, just give him another chance. So what does he plead? No, he pleads very much for you. He pleads the merit of his own blood, the blood that takes away the sin of the world, even the great sin of unbelief of which the Spirit is now convicting you. Why then hesitate to apply the certain and comforting inference that he is able to save you to the uttermost? Why discouraged by the sight of your sin, your failure, your backsliding, or the difficulty of obedience, or fear arising in front of you on every side? When you have taken the most extended view of the prospect of all sorrows, this one word, quoting from Hebrews, uttermost, save you to the uttermost. This one word goes beyond every sorrow. If you feel it's hard to believe, then send up your cry to Christ. Help my unbelief. But do not dishonor Christ by willing despondency. Do not add the sin of disobedience, to the sin of disobedience, the sin of delaying to come to him. We start in Christ. It's the only way. We'll talk about how the law will look to us if we didn't start in Christ in a few minutes. But that's where we start. In Christ. I want to have a heart free of idols. In Christ. I don't have to adjust God to fit me. Looking to Christ. I follow his pattern. Now. How do you do that? What can you do practically? Well, one of the things that we've talked about and I want to spend some time here because it's going to impact the other areas, is personally, we need to determine that by the help of God, we will have constant, frequent exposure to God in the Bible, that we will come back again and again and in our hearts, that well-beaten path of prayer, we'll open our Bibles, we'll see what God says, and as we're reading through our Bibles, from Genesis to Revelation and back again, as we're studying and comparing verses, and this verse talks about this, and it talks about this again later, and, and so we're looking and we're trying to get to the bottom of things, 
Remember that in all of that, the great thing that you're after is the clear sight of God in Christ. Who is he? Not that we don't know him at all, but there's always more to know. And there's always the temptation in this poisonous environment of a sinful world. There's always a temptation to kind of drift away from the biblical picture and to begin to add or subtract. It doesn't become effortless as you grow older. Remember Gideon in the early part of his life in the book of Judges? Israel is worshiping idols. God raises up enemies, the Midianites, and they, they just, they make life miserable for Israel. And when Israel gets so miserable, they cry out to God. God raises up a rescuer, a judge, Gideon. And Gideon, do you remember the first act of obedience for Gideon? What was it? I got to get a drink, so you have to answer that one. What was the first act of obedience for Gideon? Yeah, he went to church and ripped down the local idols. Who was the pastor? His dad. He goes and rips down the Baal and the Asherah, the fertility gods of the area, because they don't belong in Israel's hearts and worship. He rips them down and destroys them and burns them. As an old man, faithful Gideon, who starts by destroying idols, becomes careless and he decides to add a little or refashion God a little. And he makes, with this gold that he got from uh, the reward of leading the armies, he takes the gold and he makes a golden ephod. It's a part of a priest's outfit. It's like a golden plate that he wore on the outside. He makes one of these and he sets it up in his little house and makes a little special place for it. And it becomes an object of worship to him, to his family, to Israel. Strange. The guy that began by ripping down his dad's false idols ends by making a little idol. We have to have the constant exposure to Scripture so that we see God as He is. And you know that you're on the right track when two things happen. First, you think to yourself, He is so real. Why would I trade him for a God that isn't real? For a God of my imagination? For a God that the culture offers me? Why? It's, it's like what, what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 2. Have you ever heard, he's talking to creation, trees, clouds, sun, moon, earth, mountains, streams. You give us your testimony. You've been around a long time. Have you ever noticed a nation trade their idols for other idols? Well, no, they're, they're touchingly loyal to their idols, but their idols are empty, and yet they stick with them, even though those idols never help them. So then he says to creation, but notice this, be shocked, be appalled at this. Israel, the one people that had the true God, traded him for false gods. When we stay in Scripture and we see God for who he is, we are so amazed at the fact that he really is and that he is your God that you don't want to trade him. 
and you don't want to adjust him. That's the other thing. Why would I add anything to him? He is infinite. Every aspect of God is perfect, and every perfection of God is without end, without limit, without measure. Only God knows how big God is. We don't. The scripture is not exaggerating how big or how good God is. It's an understatement. So when we see the infinity of God and the goodness of God, and we're exposed to that morning by morning by morning, night by night, throughout the day, we're studying our Bibles, we're getting to know Him, and the result is we don't want anyone other than Him, and we don't want to adjust Him. What could I add? What would I want to take away? We become like the wife in the Song of Solomon when she's searching for her love, and the night guards in the street find a queen running around at night past curfew, and they say, they don't know it's the queen, and they say to her, uh, why are you out here? I'm looking for my love, the, the man my, that I love, my beloved. Okay, well, what's he like? What's so great about him? You get up in the middle of the night and go try to find him and wander a city street alone. And she gives that long description in Song of Solomon 5, but in that description, she says those wonderful things. He is chief among 10,000. He is dazzling. He is altogether lovely. That is, there isn't anything about him I don't like. And that's the Christian statement to the world. Why do you want to keep the first and second command? Is that going to get you into heaven? Does that pay for what you did when you were back, when you were young and you weren't a Christian? No, not at all. But you have to understand I don't want any other God and I don't want to detract or add to this God because he's dazzling and he is the chief among 10,000 and he is altogether lovely. There is no unpleasant thing in my God. So we want to search the scriptures. Spurgeon gives this comment. When he talks about getting to know God, he says, let it be heart knowledge You tell your children to learn their school lessons by heart. You cannot learn Christ in any other way, he says. Love only can learn love, and Christ is love incarnate. It is by loving Christ and communing with Christ that you will really get to know Christ. You must learn him by heart. Then you must learn him experientially. That is, you apply those things in your life and you experience the truths of Christ. Spurgeon says, I don't want to be taught by a man that simply gives me book facts. He said in this quote, I can read the book for myself. Who do you want to be taught by? He goes on to say this. I want to be taught by one who has tasted and handled the things of which he speaks. Dear brethren, in Christ, seek to know Christ. By living upon Christ. Now that's important because how you do that affects everything else. Get that wrong and every other area of life where you want to apply and help others apply the first and second commandments, it'll be impossible. Hearts captivated by God, I don't want anyone but him. And I don't want to add to him and I don't want to subtract from him. I want to live for him. Second, what about the home? How can you lead or influence or help those in your family obey the first two commandments? Well, if you're a parent and you have children or if you're married and 
So if you're part of a family and you're a leader in the family, well, family worship comes to mind. It's not easy. But we can use family worship in different ways. We can use family worship to make ourselves feel good, like, well, I did it. Uh, We could use family worship to kind of make our children know what we expect of them. Good kids do these things. You know, if you want to be a good kid, you do these things. Or we can use family worship for worship to see the worth of God and to talk about, okay, so as a family, how do you respond to a God that's worth that much? So you could use family worship to show the greatness and the goodness of God and the privilege of being a people who have a real God and not a lie. You know, Jesus is not like the great Oz in The Wizard of Oz who sits behind curtains and uses machines, you know, and to thunder out his voice and everybody's so terrified of the great Oz until you see the great Oz and he's nothing. Well, that's not our Lord. But that's what we would have without Christ. We would be devoting our lives to some little man behind a curtain that couldn't do anything for us. What a privilege to belong to a living God who is infinitely beautiful. So we teach our children that the reason we obey God in all the little specifics that he mentions, even when they are young, even a child is known by his ways, God takes notice of our children. We want to show them this is what pleases the Lord. But why do we want to please the Lord? Because he is. He really is. And he is so good. No one who meets him would want to adjust him. We don't want to turn our children into little Pharisees saying good kids do good things. We don't want to turn our children into kids that are all about us. Don't embarrass mom at Walmart, you know, where kids love to be bad. We want to say to them, look, this is the path of people who have met the true God. In the little decisions you make in your family, which speak louder than family worship, can you be careful by the grace of God, mom and dad, to make all the little decisions, not the big ones that everyone notices, the little ones that we don't notice, the little decisions of how we interact with each other and what we choose to do with our time and as a family what we focus on and Can you make those choices based on the first and second commandment? He is, guys, he is infinitely wonderful. We don't want to adjust him. We don't want any other God but him. So how does that change the way we act as a family? There will be so many little things that you can apply that to. What if you're not the parent What if you're the kid? Well, you can be an encouragement to a parent who is trying to do family worship. I don't know if that ever entered your mind. You know, that mom and dad might need a little encouragement and that you might not want to make life as hard as possible on them so that family worship gets moved from 10 minutes to 30 seconds. You know, like, forget it, done, we're done, we're done, you know. I did that. Not helpful, the bad part. I I made family worship for my dad. I was a teenager when my dad decided that maybe we should do family worship. I mean, we had never heard of it. When my dad hears of it, he tries to do family worship, and I made it so miserable, he quit family worship. 
You could be different than that. When mom and dad say, it's time for family worship, you could think this. I want to get to know the God that my mom and dad know. So, even though I have to quit playing or I have to go quit doing this, and I have to sit still for a little bit, you can do like Andrew Snyder. He never listened to any family worship seated normally. As soon as we started family worship, he turned on his head and sat on the couch beside me with his bottom up in the air and his face down between the cushions. I don't know. It's kind of like, you know, the book of Revelation, hide me from that God, you know. And Andrew was right there. And I would look at his mom like, what is wrong with our kid? And she would just say, she would shrug like, well, keep going. So we would do family worship and there would be Andrew's bottom every time. Oh, Andrew's here somewhere, you know. Now, you may wiggle and you may stand on your head if your parents allow you, but you can say to your mom and dad, I think it's good that we do family worship because we do want to know the God of the Bible, not have a God that we imagined. That would be miserable. But what if you move out from the family to the church? How do you help? In Hebrews 10, it's a clear command. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. How to stir each other up. Okay, don't you let go of the hope that's in Christ. It, it's solid. And do look around you and think, how can I help other believers do that? How can you help the people around you obey the first two commands? If we're to stir each other up to good deeds, surely good deeds are going to have to include these two commands, which are fundamental to all obedience. It's not just doing religious things. It's doing things for love of the one God that is and not with a divided heart and doing these things in a way that represents the God as he describes himself to be and not adjusting God. And so how do you help your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ do that? There's so many ways. But really, if you will just prayerfully come to church and prayerfully live the week with the church prayer list in front of you, perhaps, and you think about the people that are on that day of the month that you pray for, can you not pray for them the way Paul prayed in Colossians when he prayed that the people would have spiritual wisdom so they would know how to live a life that was worthy of their calling, that matched God, and how to do all of his good pleasure, and how to, how to abound in good works, and he prays that they would ever increase in the knowledge of God. Do you pray that for the people you go to church with? And when we pray for them, don't pray for them as if it's optional. Pray for them like you pray for people in your family when you're concerned. You know, there's, there's the way of praying that just lists off the names as if God didn't know how to read our list. And then there's the kind of praying that you pray, not because you're twisting God's arm, but it's not optional. God, I'm pleading with you. Will you help our church grow in the knowledge of who you are to ever increase in that? So that our hearts would be, as Philippians 2 says, Chuck has just preached from this, our hearts, we would be like-minded, intent on one purpose. What is the purpose of this little church? We want to please Him because we love Him. 
that means we're going to have to be intent on one purpose. That purpose is going to include we want only one God in our hearts, at home, individually, at church, and we don't want to adjust him. Why would we add to him? What could we take away from him? Help each other. If you have been a Christian for some time, if you're, you know, middle-aged, if you've been a Christian for a while, even if you've just been around for a while, but you're a baby Christian now, you will notice that humans go through different stages of life, and every stage has its peculiar temptations. And it's good to be thoughtful, because oftentimes it's those particular temptations that will trip up the people that you worship with. So... You think of being young and single. Uh, or let's go earlier than that. So a young person will say, you know, when I grow up, and they have these great plans, this will make me happy. And you can say to them kindly, without squashing their little plans, you know, that's, a, that's not a bad idea. You want to be a firefighter? You, you want to be a whatever? Okay. But make sure that whatever you are, you love the one true God with all your heart, and never accept a different, adjusted God. You don't ever think differently than the Bible says about him. Think about young people in their 20s, and they, they're thinking a lot about their future life, and, and maybe who they'll be married to, and will God give them someone to be married to? That's not for everybody, but if he does, what will he be like? What will she be like? And it is so tempting for young believers, particularly in their 20s and later, if they're not married, to believe the lie that they have to adjust God and their views of the Christian life to make room for Mr. Wright over here or Mrs. Wright. I can have them, but I have to adjust my view of God. How many real believers, when they are lonely, they compromise and they marry someone that doesn't love the Lord. But they said, well, you know, I think they love the Lord. And then after marriage, things are very difficult. You can pray for them. You can encourage them. Yes, marriage is a wonderful gift from God. And maybe there is a guy out there for you that God has or a girl out there for you that God has. But make sure that when you're looking, look for one that loves one God with all their heart. Not just, do they go to church? Are, are they reformed? You know, Do they believe what we believe? Think about the other stage of life. Young families. You get married. Perhaps the Lord gives you children. It is so easy to become self-absorbed. You're so excited with what you have. This is what you wanted. And so now that you have what you want, and it's kind of easy to become this self-isolating little happy unit and you don't think about living in a way that helps anyone else. And so you come along, young couples, and in a gentle way, because if you're older, you know what that's like, and you say to them, it's a wonderful gift God has given you, a family. But, but don't forget that it's God alone that we should love as families. And we don't want the family, which is a wonderful gift, to become our new God. There's middle age where your job hopefully is providing enough for you to, you know, to pay the bills. And then there's extra and the kids get off of your, you know, off of your checking account. And 
then you, can, you have free money and you have maybe a little free time. You're not taking them everywhere on the planet to go to all their activities and it's easy to become self-indulgent. And what about older believers? Will you help them? Will you pray for them? It's easy when you're older to be isolated. It's easy to feel that you have no part in the kingdom. What can you do? You used to be the one that did all the work in the church. Now you can't. And people have to think about helping you. And it's hard. And there's despair. And there's the lies of the enemy. But they need to live all the way to the end. Thrilled to belong to one God that really is. Will you help them? Let me just say a couple of practical things there before we pass on to the world. One is, if you want to help others and you're going to recommend good books or podcasts or online sermons, which we do all the time, be careful that you don't recommend books or podcasts or sermons from people that are really good in one of these external areas, like how to fix your marriage, how to, how to raise kids in a better way, how to, be a, how to have a good work ethic, you know, how to fix the church, how to fix the nation. But when you give the book, you have to say, look, they're really good here, here, and here, but over here, don't, don't read them when they talk about this, because here they're wrong. If we give recommendations of teachers that are good in some areas, but at the heart of who God is and how God saves and, you know, the fundamentals we have to say, well, don't pay too much attention to them there. You could be guilty of helping someone fix an external area, but being, in a, being a part of them disobeying in the first and second commandment. You give them a book that has adjusted views of God, but you tell them don't adjust your God. And what if they do adjust God? Because they say, that was a great book. Boy, they were great on marriage or, or the nation or whatever. And and then you start to find that they drift toward wrong views of God. So be careful when we recommend that we don't recommend authors or preachers or podcasts that have a lot good, but at the heart there's some deep problems. Well, let's go on to the last, the world. How do you help the world? We're supposed to be light to the world. We're supposed to be salt, and that means taking the word of God to the world, not just about Christ, but also what God is like and what God loves and what God hates. And where do you start? I think that's probably the biggest question for us. Where do you start? When you go to work and you hear people talking or you see people making decisions and they're nice people, but they're making decisions that are crazy, you know, and they're talking crazy, morally crazy. And you think, why in the world do you talk that way, you know? And so it's so easy to begin when we talk about right and wrong and we talk about, you know, living as a Christian. It is so easy to begin by focusing on the most extreme problems in our culture. And usually we feel like we're talking about people out there. Those people, which is always a red flag. But let's say you're at work and you say, well, that's just ludicrous, and this is crazy, and this is crazy, and whoever thought we would be saying this in our nation, and you focus on the most extreme edges. Guys, you can do that, 
and you can tell them what the Bible says about alternative lifestyles and, and you know, identifying yourselves as you want to identify yourself and ruling yourself. And you can tell them all of that. And I think you will do them little good if that's where you start. So where do you start? Why not start where God starts? Where we, where we live in a way that shows them the reason we do certain things that they aren't interested in and the reason we won't do things that they think are essential to happiness. Why are you different? Well, it's not because, well, I was raised that way. My family didn't drink. My family didn't do this. My church teaches this. We show them that the reason we live differently is because there really is one living God and he is so perfect. Through his saving work, you have come to know him. And knowing him, you wouldn't want to add anything to him or subtract anything from him. And you wouldn't want to have any other God in your heart. For you, it's just him. And that's why you live differently. If we could live and speak to the people that we work with or go to school with or live next to, when there's an appropriate opening, if we could do that in a way that started with the first commandments, I think it would be much more helpful for people in the world who don't act like you to know the reason they don't act like you is because they don't love the God of the Bible. What is the most alarming moral crime? What is the most alarming immorality? It is not a kid saying they want to change their sexual identity. It is a grown-up in the Mid-South saying, I've heard all about Jesus. I am bored and indifferent toward this Jesus. The God-man means nothing to me, not in reality. The great crime of humanity is that we will not love the one being who is infinitely lovely. So where do we start with the world? Show them that the reason we live differently is not because of us. It's because of whom we belong to and how perfect he is. And how because of that, we wouldn't want to live any other way. Now, let me bring it to a close by going back to the right and wrong ways to approach the law. I mentioned that we have to come to it through Christ so that we see it in the right light. The law is not angry with us. It's a friend that guides us in a path of love. And in Christ, we have everything we need to happily devote ourselves to this one unadjusted God. Okay. But what if we don't take that approach? What if you think, well, all of that's fine, but I'm not interested in that. So in your own life, in your family, and at work or at church, you try to fix yourself and everybody around you in the way the Pharisees did. That is, look, all we need is right and wrong. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. And I do things that are right. And I don't do things that are wrong. And I don't hang around people that do things that are wrong. You'll be like the Pharisee. What was wrong with the Pharisee? The Pharisee appeared to really be very concerned about what God wanted in life, the law of God. But the Pharisee was totally uninterested in what God really wanted. What the Pharisee was interested in was not pleasing the Lord, but using God, using the law. Okay, we'll keep these commands and then God will give us what we want. 
And when they came to the commands, because they did not really know the greatness of the lawgiver, God, because they did not love the lawgiver, then religion was using commands to fix themselves and fix everybody else and get something out of God. And the commands were a burden, even though they talked about them. How do you know they were a burden? Because every time you find a Pharisee talking about the commands of God, they've adjusted them. They've tweaked them. So now the command only touches the outside of my life. You got to be really religious. You got to pray a lot. You got to give a lot. You got to, what about the heart? No, that's not important. We're just talking about the outside. So the Pharisee had a form of godliness. He had an out, he had this exterior, this exoskeleton of, of religion, but the heart was all about him. Jesus said in Matthew 5, before he explained the law in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, if you're in my kingdom, you've got to have a righteousness that's better than the Pharisees. That is, your love for the law goes through and through. It's not just on the outside. It's, it's a relationship with God that changes the inside. Now, if you put on your family a list of rules so that you can be the right kind of family and you can have the right kind of marriage, do not expect it to honor the Lord and do not expect it to work. God will not pay you handsomely. It's disobedience, not obedience, even though you're keeping the exterior code. And do not, affect it, do not expect it to affect any real change in your kids. They may obey you when they're three and 10 and even 16 and 17, but as soon as they get out of your house, they will live by what their heart wants them to do. And if God hasn't worked in it, the law will have nothing to do with that. Pharisees, not knowing God, were also very bitter with people who didn't obey all their favorite rules. So the Pharisees always angry at Jesus because of Jesus' disciples. Look at what they're doing now, Jesus. I mean, they're always bringing a report. It's like the little tattletale, you know, in your family. It's like the seven-year-old sister you had that kept bringing report from sector five. My brother's doing something wrong again. You know, the Pharisees were always angry. Jesus, your disciples, they're doing things that we don't feel you should do. And they're not doing things that we think you really got to do. Because the Pharisees, of course, had adjusted the law. And so Christ has to explain to them, you don't understand what does and doesn't please God? If you're a Pharisee, you can tell because you will keep parts of the law that fit your life and you will ignore the other parts. You will emphasize the parts that fit your life and you will be angry with everybody around you who isn't thinking that the parts you think are important are the most important. A Christian is grieved when they see Someone live against God. And we hate sin. Not perfectly, but it's there. But that is different from having an arrogant, harsh attitude toward a lost person. Because the Christian who, when walking in harmony with God, is happy, looks at a lost person who only has a little religion or or only has money, or only has this new girlfriend, or a new car, or a new house or job, and they're ignoring God, you look at them not with this harsh arrogance, but with pity. 
You are living for the things I used to live to, we could live for, we could say to them. And it's so empty. I wish you knew the happiness that I know, not from having a perfect family, perfect job, and a perfect church, but from having a perfect Savior and walking with Him. Life is so different. Where do we start? First and second commandments? Heart, knowledge, growing knowledge of God. So capturing us that it changes the way we live. It changes the way we help our family. It changes the way we help the church. It changes the way we take the truth to the world. Well, may the Lord help us. Well, I'll read the doxology from Jude, and then we can just sit for a quick moment of uh, silence, and then we're dismissed. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.